Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode here at Of Duelists and Drunkards. I'm Mr. Panda. And I'm Rockstar. This is the podcast where we do not recommend exceeding 500 milligrams at a single sitting. Since we've been skipping it a couple weeks, we're going to start things off right away by giving you an update to our con schedule. About two weeks from now, we're going to be heading out to Ohio for Cleveland Comic Con. That's two days, Saturday and Sunday of that weekend. Following that, we're going to be doing our split push. We've got most of the team up here in Stroudsburg for Yushikon coming back for 2018. Meanwhile, I and some interns will be down at the Tank Museum in Danville, Virginia for Kantaikon. This is all happening October 13th. At the end of the week, or rather the end of the month, we're going to be here in Bloomsburg for the O3 Media Festival on the campus of Bloomsburg University. You should all come out and check that out. Things are a little bit more relaxed there. We like to just hang out, preview some new content, things like that. Then in November, we've got two more conventions to wrap up the year. First, we have BonsaiCon down in Columbia, South Carolina. And currently, our last con for the year is going to be DerpyCon in Morrisville, New Jersey, going back after several years of absence. That wraps up the con schedule. Now it's time to hop right into current events. First thing we're going to talk about is we've got a study out of the UK telling us that 200, you heard that right, 200 divorces are documented as having been primarily caused by the game Fortnite. I wonder what those kinds of fights are about. I hope about an empty clip or someone accidentally tripping the power supply. You hear all kinds of things about video game causing strife in relationships, usually friendships, but apparently it can get so bad that marriages will end over Fortnite. Well, I mean, I did want to kill Streak over, not actually kill him, but... No, literally kill him. (laughs) Over a game of Unreal Tournament the one time. So I guess I can understand the anger and the frustration that might come in, especially if you're mutually gaming in a shooter. Better watch out once the ring goes on the finger. Next up, we have a report in the tech news from Japan. Japan reports from their Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, that they have successfully touched down two, that is, two landers, on the Ryugu, the Ryugu asteroid, making Japan now a new leading force in asteroid exploration. I wonder what they'll find, see if we'll get any nice photos being sent back. My personal hope is that we'll find minerals that we can exploit and then build space stations. Like unantanium. And then it will be the colonies versus Earth and then Gundams. Next, we got some exciting product news for those of you who like beer, at least. The Mortal Kombat beers are coming out, provided for us by Sound Brewery out of Washington State. This is going to include three different beers, the Scorpion Imperial Stout, the Sub-Zero IPA, and the Raiden Imperial Sizon. That last one is one that I'm personally interested in. I like my Sizons. I do not know whether or not this brewery has been involved in previous incarnations of special media beers, but honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if these are going to be the same thing that was put out for Game of Thrones, just with new labels. That's just my personal uh, expectation there. Heading back into the UK for yet another study that was conducted, Netflix and Chill takes on a new and literal meaning. According to findings of a survey that was done on power usage for certain customers over time, they are determining that time that was previously spent 
with couples, you know, doing lovemaking and all the romance stuff in bed, is being replaced by Netflix. Not television, but with online video streaming. This is also uh, in concordance with other studies that have been conducted in the UK and elsewhere, here in the in America by the CDC, showing that people are having less sex. <laughs> in the UK, I think it's down to, uh, long-term couples are down to, on average, I think four times a month is the new average. Meanwhile, in the United States, teenagers are reporting less and less sex. <laughs> because everyone's watching Netflix. This, th this meshes with my personal experience when I'm doing experiments on like uh, places like, what is it, OkCupid. I, I ran an experiment on there uh, for, for online dating stuff. And I determined that, guys, Netflix should not be a hobby. But apparently, it really is a hobby. <laughs> I mean, all that bingeable content. I, I don't. I guess I can't blame people for trying to stay up on top of popular culture. That rolls in to that discussion. I guess BoJack Horseman is turning people off to sex. I mean, have you watched the last season? Yes, I watched Disenchantment too, and apparently, no one wants to bone anymore once the happy little elves show up. If I remember correctly, Princess Bean was trying to get laid a lot of times. I know, and look how miserable her life is. Clearly, Netflix, I'm blaming you for the downturn in sexual promiscuity. Screw you. Or in fact, don't screw you. I think that's what you mean. <sighs> Next up, we got a little product tease for you. We've gotten our first preview of William Shatner's new Christmas album. Shatner Claws. I'm super excited to buy this. Didn't he also sing Rocket Man at one point, and that didn't go off that well? I mean, it it went off. <laughs> but this Two new album status. This new this new album is being made with Iggy Pop and Henry Rollins, so there's at least the the slight possibility that it's going to be something worth hearing. I guess we'll wait and find out. Sure. We've gotten all the way to the end of current events, and you're probably wondering why I haven't brought this up yet. And the answer is, there's been plenty of coverage elsewhere about Bowser and the Super Crown. We're not going to talk about it today. Enjoy. With that all wrapped up, we're going to head right into our first discussion topic for the day. Tonight we're going to touch on a topic that we already mentioned in a previous episode. We're going to be talking about Avatar, The Last Airbender, specifically. And we're going to be using it as a vehicle to discuss a much wider topic about adaptations. You should already know by now that Avatar is getting a new live-action series released from Netflix. Unlike last time, it's actually going to involve the original writers, Mike and Brian. And it's supposedly supposed to have a pretty decent budget as well. We don't have any details about how it might differ from the original, what kind of casting decisions are going to be made, but we know it's happening. And because of that, and because an adaptation into the live-action sphere has already been attempted, uh, I think this is a good time, as any, to bring up the subject of <laughs> the, the concept of being lost in adaptation, as uh, one of our other panelist friends would put it. So, to start things off, I want to talk about the new show, in the context of the old show. What was it about the old show that made things really great? 
I want to talk about what made the live-action movie so intolerable to fans of the old show. And I want to talk about what we could look forward to in the new show on Netflix that could potentially rectify the the lack of love for the movie. So, Rockstar, since you're the one who originally got me into The Last Airbender, let's talk about what made the show so interesting in the first place. I don't even know where to start with that question. You have the humor, of course, starting off with, like, Aang and Sokka. You have the interesting lore of waterbenders and where they come from and the Avatar himself. Um the interesting dynamics of what happens when you remove somebody so important to their history who's supposed to make, keep balance for a hundred years in the aftermath of it. Um, and it wasn't afraid to shy away from, it wasn't afraid to uh, show uh, powerful moments, such as when Aang finds out that he is, in fact, the last airbender and he has to stop pretending that everyone's fine and they're there. Um, they did or... have to shy away from Jet dying. Yes. Hey, do you think they... Jet's going to die in the Netflix show? <laughs> Probably. It's Netflix. They don't have the restrictions that Nickelodeon put on them anymore. So... What restrictions? I'm pretty sure it was Nickelodeon that said you can't really show a kid dying. Oh no, but you can smother the the Queen of the Earth Kingdom in like four seasons from now. <laughs> um And then you have the interesting moral dilemmas that they bring up several times throughout. You know, and all the wise sayings. I mean, there's a lot to go over when it comes to what makes The Last Airbender great, I think. Great characters, great cast. I personally ascribe its greatness to uh, the ability to give you a concise and short recap of the things that matter in the previous episodes going into the current episode. Without that, I don't think the show would have done as well. Because, man, oh man, do I hate recaps. The greatest defender of late... As I'm sure you've heard me say before, everyone, is Attack on Titan. Attack on Titan does not understand how recaps work. Actually, I've noticed a lot of anime don't understand how recaps work. But Last Airbender, Last Airbender knows how to do recaps. You're really into those recaps. You have nothing else the to say? The recaps really matter. You have nothing I can else come, to say? I can come into season three and know what's happening. That makes a good show. Like... Even if the plot wasn't that great, at least it was everything was concise and and consumable. I think the, the the most interesting aspect of the plot, getting away from the recaps for a moment, uh, was something you already touched on, which was the moral dilemmas. Uh, I think I think that Aang facing the the question of whether or not he has to kill Fire Lord or Ozai in the last season is the most intriguing aspect of the plot because mm -hmm. it's something that he that is he's staunchly against. That uh, it's not only a story dilemma, it's a personal dilemma. And I'm not even talking about the restrictions from Nickelodeon, just the idea that he has to, he's been raised in this culture where the, the thought of killing someone, even for the greater good, just is a balking idea for him. And it's a damn shame that we get to the end of it, having worked through that dilemma, only for him to just, you know, whiz kid his way out of it. But, you know, that that's maybe the one downturn to the entire story. Everything else is pretty great. 
Well, and and not to mention that it continues into the comics of uh, Zuko. If this is spoilers, I'm sorry, but I might have spoilers for the comics. I'm pretty sure at this point it doesn't matter. (laughs) But uh, uh, Zuko, like, tells Aang, kill me if I ever become like my father. And then you have that dilemma all over again for him because now it's not just, oh, it's some far off you know, big boss kind of guy. Now it's basically my best friend, my mentor, uh, you know, somebody I look up to, somebody who taught me how to firebend, and now I may have to kill him. Wow, that is... I haven't read that far in the comics. That's interesting. All right, so maybe oh, and then I'll then you get you get, you get uh, his mom, too. The backstory of his All mom. All right, well, now we're getting off task. I don't care what they're doing in the comics as it relates to this story. I mean... I'm yeah. just saying they're continuing the, the moral dilemmas and everything, and they adapt it to comics really well. Well, there's other things in other comics related to this universe that make me angry, so we're going to get off of that for now. So angry. Anyway. <laughs> but the concept of adaptation has actually spawned an entire new meme in the wake of this Avatar thing, which uh, you can see up here. We've we played with it uh, a little bit ourselves. Now, my favorite, honestly, my favorite concept in my mind involving this you know oh here's the manga here's the anime Make. here's the netflix adaptation mm-hmm. my favorite my favorite mind's eye in uh envisionment of this is showing avatar we got the comics we got the show and then the netflix adaptation is actually just that scene from the fire nation play mm-hmm. where they're reenacting this <laughs> what's happened up till now yeah with the story it's like oh that netflix adaptation oh speaking about that uh, on Reddit, I saw somebody had the greatest idea. Somebody said that the play- the people who acted in the last Airbender movie should come in during the fi- the fi- uh, Ember Island story. Oh, that'd be and so play fun. Them. <laughs> Speaking of which, what made the Shyamalan movie so terrible? Now we we discussed this in certain panels Mm -hmm. at different times. And I know that there are some points on which we disagree. For example, there actually are, in my opinion, some things, not not anywhere approaching the entirety of the movie, but there are some things that Shyamalan did that I actually, while I don't think that they have to be better than what the show did, I think they were intriguing changes and or additions. That being said... The movie is a, as a whole is a piece of garbage. Yes. So let's focus in on the main ways that that movie failed to capture what we wanted for a live action adaptation from Avatar The Last Airbender. I, I think when you start tweaking the personalities of the main cast, which are beloved... I mean, I can, I can deal with some tweaks, but when you turn someone like Sokka from this comedic... Carefree. Carefree guy to this stone-faced, barely talks, barely ever smiles character. I don't know what you're talking about with that stone-faced nonsense. That guy looks like he's in pain constantly. That works, There's too. no stone face about it. Oh, it's it, that part. If the Easter Island heads were all twisted in tortured pain... That would be the Sokka of the Shyamalan movie. No, and then on on the on the other hand, you take Katara and you 
crank up her friendship speeches to 11. And they had maybe they were pushing it on the edge for me in the cartoon at times of how many friendship speeches she would give. But the movie just like full speed. Friendship, I friendship, 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 Boo. Oh. friendship, friendship. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a terrible impersonation. <laughs> so bad. Um, and then the Aang, I'm not calling him what they called him in the movie. All right, that was well, a look, slight look. annoyance to me. At most, that was a slight annoyance. I mean, okay, I get it what you're going for there, Shavalon. It just was unnecessary. Um, the plot was incoherent. Aang There's would... an awful lot of exposition. Yeah, but it was still like it fell out of order because I, if I remember the movie, I watched it like three or four times. There's a point where Katara is talking about like who is Aang, like who is he really? Is he the Avatar? Oh then yeah, yeah, Gram, yeah. Graham Graham is like, yeah, he's totally the Avatar, and then like half an hour oh, later, oh, I think you're the Avatar. <laughs> I think you're the Avatar. Okay, yeah, Can't that was fun. that was annoying. <laughs> Oh man! And when they kept the earth benders in the uh, completely surrounded okay. by dirt, well, we, we we've been over that. And it's I, the part where I've we already, disagree. I've already indicated my disagreements there, but as the re- but you, you, the the point is made. Some things don't make sense without further thought or explanation, and we weren't getting that. And amazing that we get ex- exposition on things we don't really need, but not enough in certain other areas, right? <laughs> I swear, I, I know this is this is probably an unpopular opinion that I hold. I actually like Zuko as Zuko. I didn't have a problem with him. Um, but I know I've seen a lot of fan comments say they dislike even Zuko. I mean, at least they kept like the Iron scar Man. on the right side of his face, right? <laughs> but I actually enjoyed him. I, and that's the sad. That was the sad part for me. Was like I actually want to see more of him and grow into the Zuko character a little bit more. But now we. We would never get to see that because I doubt they're going to cast him again for Zuko. Oh yeah, well I, I definitely doubt that. I don't know what the what they're going to do with casting. To be perfectly honest, I mean the, there was enough controversy about um, whitewashing. Well, I mean not even whitewashing. I, I saw an impressive amount of uh, subtle, <laughs> low tier racism with the decision to make the Fire Nation Indian paste. But you know, fun fact, guys, we have a little more access to Indian actors than we do to Japanese actors. <laughs> I thought Iroh was an interesting cast. You know, I didn't have a problem with him being yeah, cast in the live-action movie. Liked, I liked Iroh as well. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else I liked in that. I, I was I curious that... to see more of Azula. Oh, like, yeah, the, the yeah, right? two seconds we get of her, I was like, oh, she does kind of look interesting. Good. Yeah, it would have been nice to get a little bit more of her, sadly, for whatever... <laughs> For many reasons, we're never going to see more of that. Um, one other, one other major change that I enjoyed, and I know a lot of other people didn't. I liked that the Firebenders didn't universally have the capacity to just blow fire out of their ass. I mean, again, so I I agree with the maybe not everyone's on the same level and some people need the fire to start with and stuff like that just like maybe the earth but it wasn't explained and it was just kind of like well i mean that's that's the that part i actually thought was a good decision it's like 
no, we don't need explanation for this. Look, there's fire. They bend the fire. We're done. I meant for the Earthbenders. Oh, okay. Well. And, and see, my problem with the Earthbender scene is not just that they're throwing a little pebble, but and that it's six of them. It's that they take ten million moves before moving the pebble, just like Aang takes a million moves just to move air. Like, it's like, ooh, I'm going to do all these flips, and then suddenly whoosh. <laughs> Not, like, you don't see it, like, charging up or building or anything. It's just, oh, he did all of that, and then suddenly the the thing appears. Not like I'm charging an attack and making it look that like... Could, I think that could have been more interesting if it had been done differently with the effects. That's true. But mm-hmm. I, I don't side with everyone on the idea that somehow everything that was done with the bending was wrong. I mean, like it I said... It still makes a funny... Oh, it still is hilarious. <laughs> it still looks... <laughs> it still <laughs> looks ridiculous in well, many ways. But then again... <laughs> you could have thrown that pebble faster than they bent it. <laughs> That's, That's probably true. <laughs> I mean, you might as well just picked up the rocks and thrown them. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, in a certain light, I mean, at least that... Maybe that's an important distinction, and maybe that maybe that is one element of the movie that might see the light of day in this new series. Um, since at this point we've kind of talked down the the movie, so what can we look forward to in the series? How might it differ from the animated series? What is it going to pull in, if anything, from the live action movie? If there was something they were going to take lessons learned from the live action movie, I would hope that they better establish the tiers of power that is inherent in bending because in the that's the one thing i think that the show we we gloss over it because we're watching There's more it. important we're, things well, to talk about well, i do and we're kids yeah we, we don't we don't care about that it's kind of the same struggle that you ha- that you start having when you're a dragon ball z fan and you get older and you start thinking oh yeah power levels don't actually mean anything and i think that's something that's very lacking in the original structure of the show is while there's there's clearly people who are supposed to be better than other people. We are literally given no reason to assume that these people are better at debending than other people. We have no basis for it in how their moves are. We have no basis for it in how their power is demonstrated. An earthbender pulls a giant rock out regardless, and then they just happen to not win against, you know, like Toph or whoever is bending at the time. And I that's... Since I was introduced to it at a little bit of a later age, that was something that always kind of annoyed me. I was like, okay, well, why is this person suddenly better? Like, they seem to be capable of throwing rocks around. So I hope that that that, uh, one example of Shyamalan's messing with the, the world might get a carryover. I don't think it needs a huge amount of explanation. I think that they could just rope it in there and maybe not make it as lame as seven guys moving a rock that they could have just thrown. But I think that there's something to be thought out. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about the idea that maybe only high end firebenders, like people who are actually leading these charges and the leaders and the generals and stuff, they can use their energy, maybe really advanced fighters. But I mean, like, the way they make it, the way they make it out in the animation is just like, yeah, the Fire Nation woke up one day, and you know now everyone can just breathe fire out of their throats like dragons. 
I mean, at least at least wait until the comet shows up. Yeah, then every firebender can totally do it. Maybe that, like that. Yeah, until that until the comet better... shows up, I have no reason to assume that the comet does anything. They already blow fire out of their ass. How could they possibly get more powerful? Ozai just starts bre- <laughs> firestorm. Okay, well, couldn't he have done that before? I mean, what's what's different here? I mean, they. I do think they subtly subtly. <laughs> They do subtly hit at it, hint at it later on in like the third season when uh, I forget if it was Zuko or if it was Aang having trouble actually bending fire at all. And they had to go look for the dragons. And then they do that little fusion dance. (laughs) The sun people. (laughs) Since it's coming from Mike and Brian, I'm hoping that we get more of the lore that maybe they couldn't put in in the original series? Maybe. But, I mean, I think the meme that encapsulates perfectly my feelings on the issue is the gate guard meme for it. There's a new Avatar series. Open the gate! It's live action. Close the gate! (laughs) The original writers and Netflix are doing it. Open the gate a little! And I feel that perfectly encapsulates my feelings about it. It's like, and I, I guess it's at this around this point that we're going to transition into the wider discussion, because I've said this before about other shows as well. <laughs> Sometimes in connection with your running, you should feel bad. Sometimes just in a general lecture discussion, I'm not always entirely confident that shows anything really needs to be adapted into another medium. And I really don't understand the drive to kind of revive this need for a live-action show because while there are things that I personally might have done differently if I was controlling the show, and as, as we've pointed out, there might be some things that Shyamalan was on to, not many, but some, do we need another Avatar show? What are, what are they going to bring to the table that hasn't already been done? What was there an was there an aspect of the show that failed so much that it requires a redo, or is this just about making money? It's probably just about making money. I'm just gonna come out and say it, okay? <laughs> so I'm I'm sure it's just about making money. But for me, I would I'm a rabbit fan girl and will consume anything they put out. So well, I mean, we did go to the midnight showing of that movie, so you're not wrong. Oh, I remember coming out and being so upset. I thought Oppa looked good. Yeah. I I mean, you're not wrong. I think it was fine. But if I remember, there was a lot of blue and like, remember the night scene? It was all blue. Nothing but blue. Okay, we're going to get off. Um. Uh, I think I will like the Netflix series just because it is Mike and Brian and I've consumed the rest of their media. I know that you didn't like Korra. I and did? I know no! That- <laughs> what are you talking about? I love Korra. You have a lot of problems. I have Korra. many problems with Legend of Korra. <laughs> I think that Mike My and Brian point. started drinking their own Kool-Aid at some point with with their invulnerability to criticism. 
That being said, you actually haven't read the comics either. Why the hell isn't the face stealer in Legend of Korra? That would have been a much better villain. Anyway, that's that's another that's another discussion for the future. Actually, I believe a sibling of the face stealer shows up in uh, the comics for that. The sounds Avatar. really boring. No, it's actually really interesting. Oh, a sibling shows up. Why? It's just like The Little Mermaid 2. Look how thrilling that is. No, it's not. It's re- it has to do with Zuko's oh, is this mother. Like, is this like Jaws 4, where a sibling of the shark wants revenge in the water park? Or is that Jaws 3? I actually don't remember. Anyways, knowing Mike and Brian, I'm pretty yeah, sure... siblings. Sibli- you know what? That's a list we should do. Lists where siblings take over. Or rather, movies where siblings take over for a superior villain. I'm sorry. I'm angry. Continue. Clearly, I was going to say, the sibling's not even an enemy. Or a villain. Well, that's even weirder. I'm, I'm intentionally, because it has to do with Zuko's mother, and refraining from most of the details. Well, good. Go read the comics if you are so inclined, everybody. They do talk about Zuko's mother in detail. Um, Is there... Oh, boy. I don't know. So, I would hope that maybe they carry over the Shyamalan stuff, as I already said. At least the positives. I think they're going to add more lore. That would be nice. Because otherwise, why would you adapt it? Well, if you're just going to adapt question. it scene for scene, it's kind of boring. So that, that raises the question. So and ties into the wider discussion. So let's go ahead and shift over to that for a minute, and then we'll come back to this at the end, I guess. Why do adaptations go so wrong? I I've tied it down to mm, four interlacing factors, I believe. Yeah, four interlacing factors. So sometimes they blur together. Sometimes they, to a certain extent, they're distinct. But they all kind of play into each other. So talk about them one at one at a time? Well, we'll just go through them. So the first one I have is lack of accuracy. I feel like a good example of that, this is the, this is the part that hits on with people who are fans of the original version, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Being so diff, uh, having so little association with the original that it just turns off fans. Specifically, fans of the original. I think a good example of that would be something like World War Z. World War Z was still a zombie movie, was still had all the major points, but was so dissimilar to the fans of the uh, to the book that people had come to love in its realism, in its well, uh, that's really the the one thing that said it, it was such a realistic story that people just didn't like it as much. Even though it made money, it wasn't that great of an adaptation of the World War Z book, per se. Uh, another thing is the which, again, this is one of those things that it's like, is this the same thing? Is this not? It's a little bit different. Changes to the fundamental story. Mm-hmm. When you, It's not so much that it's not an accurate depiction. It, it's not that it doesn't look like the, the original and how, it's, how you vision, envision it. It's that Enough changes are made so that you really do not have the same experience when you're viewing the movie. I don't think you've seen it, and I don't think I don't remember if you read the book or not. But Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card Mm -hmm. is, for me, a really good example of how this can go wrong. The movie, and I think 
I think some people might disagree with me on this, but the casting of the movie I thought was really good. I thought they had all the elements they needed to make that movie not only successful, not only well done, but also it, uh, a movie that would really appeal to fans. But they missed it. And I think the reason they missed it is because they focused on all the elements that they thought would make a big, spectacular splash of an action movie. And they de-emphasized and eliminated the parts that made it psychologically interesting, that gave us the the depth of the emotional character that is Ed, uh, that is the kid Ender. So while all the trappings of the story were still there, super uh, superficially and aesthetically, it was the story. It lacked that the the strong undercurrent that made the book so interesting for so many readers back in the day. Another thing that I think adaptations fail at is when you have a story that you don't actually have a way to adapt, but you try to do it anyway. You could tie this back into... I think a really old example would have been Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. One of the Beatles, I think it was Ringo, really wanted to do a live-action adaptation of Lord of the Rings, and that never materialized, and thank goodness, because it probably would not have worked out. We got instead an animated version with Ralph Bakshi that was very critically panned, didn't really work out the way they wanted to. It wasn't until much more recently that we were that we had the incentive, the money, and the technology to make what we wanted. Dune is another D-U-N-E, by the way, not not Doom. <laughs> oh, that was a weird movie. Dune, um, I think, suffered from that a little bit. And I think that's why there are a lot of people who much prefer the more recent Sci-Fi Channel miniseries adaptation, even though I think that the movie has a lot of things to recommend it, in particular casting. But I also do think that there were definitely aspects of that movie that... <laughs> aspects of the story that just were not adaptable to the to the movie version. There's mm-hmm. so When you have so much internal dialogue, so much introspection, it is very difficult to get that across into the, a visual media like a movie. And if Dune were to... Uh, I think uh, um, Orson Scott Card talked a little bit about that too with his... with Ender's Game, how... There's so much introspection, so much internal eyes psychology. It's just very difficult to do, uh, if not impossible. And while again, we kind of get that visual, the visual elements of uh, of the Dune story in the in the 1980s movie, we definitely miss out on the uh, the intrigue of the story in many ways. Uh, <laughs> Sting is not enough to make up for. A lot of the things that failed in the 1980s Dune, and while I love it to death, it definitely does not fully reflect the glory of Frank Herbert's science fiction masterpiece. The final thing that I'd like to cite as reasons for the failure of adaptations is over-adherence or hyper-accuracy. And it's not a great example, but I love using it as an example. The one I like to highlight as the reason for this, how you can go too far in trying to make it the thing that that you're basing it off of, mm-hmm. is an HBO movie called Fist of the North Star, which is based on the anime Fist of the North Star. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. We, uh, we showed it in my science fiction club a while ago, too. And the problem with Fist of the North Star 
is that it's too spot on. It's so spot on that you start to realize just how freaking ridiculous the show is. Like, you guys know what I'm talking about here. You know, what? The and then, and then the guy's jaw just juts halfway off his face. They do that in the movie. And I'm like, oh shit. This was always stupid. This sounds hilarious. It is. Malcolm McDowell's in it. Oh my god, yes! I need to watch this! Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Uh, well, if you're talking about um, adhering too much to the story, you know, Hunger Games does that up until Mockingjay, too. Uh, you know, you're kind of right, yeah. Up until the point that the problem with Mockingjay is it also, uh, not Mockingjay, the problem with the first two Hunger Games is it, is, it assumes... Hunger Games and Catching Fire. Mm -hmm, it assumes that you've already read the book. Because they leave out certain aspects that if you watch only the movies, you miss out on. For instance, ev oh, I know that the biggest critique from people who only watched the movie was, well, why was Katniss able to take over for her younger sister? Wouldn't everyone just take places with whoever gets picked? And it's like, no, because you can only do it if it's, if it's your sibling and stuff like that. It, you know, all the... Uh, Is that true? Yeah. I don't remember that detail. They, I, thought it real, I thought it literally was you could, you could just volunteer. No, you, ha you can only volunteer if it's your sibling up for. Yeah. That's why you don't have a group of kids who only train oh, for wait, the Hunger wait, wait, Games wait, wait. in every district. No, that can't be true, though, because then when they do the, the quarter quell... The quarter quell has different oh, okay. rules. I haven't read the books in a long time, so I'll just defer to your judgment on that. Yeah, no, on, on every annual one, it's fine. Like, it's just your sibling. But for the quarter quell, it's different, it, especially that quarter quell, because they only use champions. Okay. So it, if you wanted to volunteer, say, you know, like... Um, I'm trying to remember her name. The old lady did for Annie in Phoenix region. I forget what her name is, but she did it. And it was just because obviously at that point you're not siblings and there's only champions. So that's how you would replace someone. Hmm. Interesting. When I think of adaptations that worked, I can think of a bunch of examples. Uh, I think really the only place that we have a struggle you know, I'll get to that. Examples of good adaptations. Times where they were able... To, uh, let's focus specifically, of course, on movies. Times where they were able to take an original piece of media and adapt it into a live-action film. I think of things like Scott Pilgrim versus yeah, The World. that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. 300. And you can take or leave it with whether or not you <laughs> like the film, but it was a pretty good adaptation and it made money, and that's what matters. <laughs> Cloud Atlas, which was based on a novel. The Green Mile, Stephen oh, King one. Actually, that's one of the few Stephen King movies. It. Well, which it are you talking about? That was a miniseries. That was not a movie. Okay. Well, that was on ABC. Be, you have to be specific. I said we were talking about movies. Um, no, there's two it movies. No, there's only one. The, the ABC miniseries with... The one that just came out, like, last year with Pennywise? 
Yeah, that's the only movie version that's ever been made of it. The no, other one is, is a miniseries. Really? It's yeah, not it's a, a miniseries movie? that was it it was a miniseries on ABC that was cut into a movie version later on. But that's why it's super long. So if you ever own the original version, it was like two separate VHS cassette tapes because it was actually a miniseries. Oh my god! And the I, reason that, you the know the Green Mile came like that too. Yeah. Well, the reason the reason the reason it wasn't super like bloody or anything is because it had to air on television. Mm. See, I learned something. And new. also, isn't that tech? That was technically a sequel anyway. That's not an actual adaptation of it. If you if you watch the ABC it with Tim Curry mm-hmm. as as Pennywise, that's technically a sequel. That is to not. Ac- it is not actually an adaptation of it. To what? It's a sequel to the novel. It's a sequel to the novel it. Yeah. Actually, that's why they're what well, they're talking about the next movie that they're going to make. That would be an, a remake of uh, that. Of that. Because mm-hmm. while the scene the scene with Georgie is in the miniseries, everything that happens after that is a, is a sequel to the novel. Are they? That's gonna my have understanding. The new, are they going to have the new Pennywise go? Aha! 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 Probably. <laughs> I hope so. That'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> Oh, and of course, um, probably the most successful adaptation we've had in quite some time. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because, well, yeah, I know I'm going to say that because it's the number of it's the number of uh, books involved. Harry Potter. Like if we yeah. if we if we discount the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is based off of comic books, <laughs> Harry Potter is probably the most successful book adaptation to movie of all time. In terms of how much money it's managed to garner, how much fan participation it's managed to garner over the years. Yeah, although you'll have fans argue with the tales of certain movies. Yeah, but what all of these movies have in common in my mind is that they do make changes. They make distinct aesthetic or story plot changes. They simplify things. They condense things. They make they change things around a little bit to make them a little more convenient. None of them try to stick so hard to the story that they get bogged down in it. And I think that's that's what a lot of people don't understand about adaptations is the goal of an adaptation shouldn't be to give you a perfect rendering of the original media because if that, if it did, why would what what's the point? You already had that original media. And that's the reason I wanted to tie it, uh, kind of come full circle here. I don't know if the last Avatar live action series on Netflix is going to give us anything different, anything new that would make it so we don't have to go watch watch the original. Like if if you if you make an adaptation that's so purely the the original version that it the original becomes superfluous, well what was the point? I have a question. Sure. Why wasn't Lord of the Rings on that list? Because I didn't think of it. Lord of the Rings would be another good example, but I think Harry Potter made more as a franchise. Well, that's because I'm talking Lord of the Rings, not Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And besides, The Hobbit was not a good adaptation of The Hobbit. Look, we're going to... <laughs> Let's just not talk about The Hobbit for now. But The Lord of the Rings also streamlined things, skipped things. There's an entire arc with Tom Bombadil that, while interesting, has no bearing on the rest of the story and was perfectly skippable. Yeah, and then you have the uh, three-hour-long extended movies. Which Even that awesome. doesn't have Tom Bombadil. No, I know. And thank God they skipped all the poems. Otherwise, we'd be sick of songs from Lord of the Rings. 
Let me just say oh, that. Oh, there's so much saying. Oh. Council of Elrond takes 60 pages. You know, all that good stuff. I swear the Council of Elrond took much longer than that. Especially, I think it's Gandalf monologuing most of the entire time. Which, thank God, we didn't get Gandalf And the best part is there's, there's parts where it's like, oh yeah, and then he went on for like another hour or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, even the Book of Bridges, the Council of Elrond. Yeah, even the book gets sick and tired of his shit. It's like, okay, Gandalf just then kept... Bil- then Bilbo comes up and is like, hey, it's noon, motherfuckers, you want to eat or not? I'm a goddamn hobbit. Need to have my elevensies. <laughs> Give me some cream puffs up at this bitch. <laughs> it's tea time, assholes. <laughs> that should be a shirt. It's tea time, assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think we're going to have a new shirt out for you in a couple months. Oh, it's Tea great. Time it's assholes, assholes featuring featuring our two favorite hobbits, Peregrine and uh, Mary. <laughs> oh. Although they did keep interesting, like they do have some songs from the book that I appreciate, like when they have Peregrine and uh Mary singing at the bar. Yeah. I do appreciate that one. So adaptations can work, or they don't, cannot work. Oh, there's a little. I don't know. I, don't, I think. Um, I love how Lord of the Rings has both of those examples. They have one that works, and one that doesn't. Well, let me put it this way: The Hobbit worked in the extent that it made money, but it certainly was not pleasing to me. <laughs> that, and that's a fan so, of the Hobbits. And there's just so much of it that just drags on and is unnecessary and is clearly. You know what's really interesting? I made this comment years ago on a forum when the when they first talked about making the live-action Hobbit movies. And the, the opinion I offered was that the problem with... It, it was originally when Peter Jackson said he did not want to direct the movies. And that's mm-hmm. why they didn't immediately go in to make them. Mm-hmm. And what I said was, Peter Jackson doesn't want to do this because if he makes those movies... He's going to feel the pressure of a guy who made, who got best picture for a high fantasy film going Mm -hmm. into this story and having to replicate that. Because you can't come down from that. You have to keep trying. And guess what, guys? That's exactly what happened. Peter Jackson felt the pressure to make these movies, Mm -hmm. the huge sweeping epic saga of the return of the king. Yep. Again, even mm-hmm. though that ha- that's that's not the fundamental story of The Hobbit. So that, that would be a good example of changing the aspects of the fundamental story. Good for you, Peter Jackson. It still worked out monetarily. But man, no one's going to remember you for The Hobbit. That's for sure. I'll remember it for Benedict Cumberbatch. You were pretty good. Especially in, this, especially in the uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> I would have loved to be a fly during that voice recording. <laughs> I think where adaptations do keep stumbling is video game adaptations, video games to movies. Oh. I already I already alluded to Doom with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Though it's interesting that probably the most successful video game adaptation of all time in terms of critical response. It also stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, 
Rampage, which is the most recent one. I have not watched it yet. I have to double check my notes here. But um, in terms of video game adaptation to movies making money, monetary, mm-hmm. monetary success, I think the top, the top hitter for a couple of years was actually Pokemon the first movie. Then that got supplanted within a few years by uh, by the Lara Croft movie, the original with uh, Angelina Jolie. Yeah, that would make sense. And then I be- actually I think Rampage might actually be on top right now, uh, as far as video game adaptation earnings. If not, it's Angry Birds, <laughs> which had nothing to do with the game. Happily no, enough, really, it didn't. <laughs> But it worked out. I mean, but, <laughs> it wasn't that bad of a movie. I ended up watching through that one. If there were going to be a video game adaptation of a movie that was both commercially successful and critically successful, what do you think it would be? You'll be pleased to know that there's a lot of Pokemon movies in the top box office earnings for video game adaptation style movies. Huh. See, I have something that I want to be adapted, but not into a movie. I would rather see it adapted to like a Netflix original because I think if that's If you say Undertale, actually... I'm going to flip this table. <laughs> no, it was actually not Undertale. I okay. was going to say Mass Effect would be a great series. Only not if a it movie. includes the line, Will Bane okay? <laughs> Will Bane okay? It has to. It just has to. There's Bane, no way okay. around it. Even the original voice actor. Was forced to say it at a panel. Well, Bane, okay? You gotta do it. <laughs> I don't care what it takes. That has to happen. Um, I, I could see Mass Effect working out somehow. I know that they've been talking on and off about Metal Gear Solid movies. <laughs> yeah, I could see that working. I don't know if it would be commercially successful or not, because it would essentially be a clone of Mission Impossible. Though Mission Impossible has been doing a lot better with the critics and in the money money field lately, so maybe it could work. I don't know. Start- maybe Diablo. That could be interesting, though I definitely see that more in the lines of a series than a, a movie. I mean, there is a lot, but if you like, would be a it good spiritual the- successor to uh, Game of Thrones. Everyone's. I think that's. A, you know what? That should be an entirely different topic uh, for us later on in the podcast, talking about what the potential f- uh, successor to Game of Thrones is. But you have to watch it first. <laughs> I have to watch Everyone's it. Everyone's talking and I, about it. Well, the, see, I'm still in the debate mode of do I read it first or do I watch it first? Oh, you should probably watch it first. Watch because we've we we already did this where you um for death uh, was it for Death Note where we had you watch the live action the, series first. Yep, I watched the Netflix original for one first. Yeah, and then I went back and watched the anime. Yeah, so uh, that would be my recommendation. I know that I read, like, the first two or three pages of Game of Thrones, and... It's fine. You haven't you haven't gotten anywhere. Well, no, I know, but it's very dizzying. I thought Tolkien was... Flow- I thought... No. I thought Norman was flowery in his language. <laughs> oh. Uh, Martin writes in a way that is just much more circular than Norman. Norman I can read just fine. And not deal with too much problems. Like, Martin, I have to just keep rereading the same paragraph over and over again. So when it comes to the new Avatar series, I am sitting in nervous anticipation of what might come. And I'm hopeful. With that out of the way, we're going to go to a new product exhibit.
Yeah, we have at least one more of these. Go figure. So we're going to be trying some soda tonight. Aren't you excited, Roxy? Oh, yes. It's my favorite thing. So we got two for you today. Again, one is from the company Ugave. It's an organic agave sweetened soda. And the flavor is strawberry rhubarb. And this is what? From Martian poop? Is that what they're that called? Is, that's the soda. Martian yeah. poop. Okay, the soda's Martian poop. Apparently, it's Marion Berry flavor soda. Oh, my word. It's Marion. Marion Berry. It's just like Maid Marion. <laughs> All right. Here we go. That is a very interesting sweetness on the, t- on the edge there. Hmm. Yeah. I actually really like this. This is probably the first soda that we've tried that I actually enjoy. <laughs> I I feel the same sentiment over here. This is actually pretty good. Like I'm not getting a whole lot of the rhubarb part, though. Normally, you're supposed to get some kind of bitter aspect, but I guess they traded that out for more st- of the strawberry kind of stuff. All right, yeah, it's swap. it's very berry. It's um like a mixture of strawberry and. Not much Blue? of a scent. Uh, no. Huh. Interesting. Um. Hmm. I mean, I taste the strawberry, but it's almost like sour too. Oh well, then you're getting the rhubarb, and I'm just dead. My taste buds are dead because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little sour. It's a little sweet. I thought I was gonna hate it because it has agave in it. And what do you I... mean? What do you mean you're gonna hate it because there's agave in it? I don't like agave. I've what do you mean you don't like agave? I've had it before. You're Mexican! Yes, yes, yes. I'm a traitor to my country and everything. What She's a- Mexican! <laughs> I don't like agave. I don't. Oh, but you don't like spicy... You don't like spicy... You are a blood traitor. You're an embarrassment. <laughs> Clearly. If Donald Trump was checking your credentials at the border, he would be like, nope, this bitch is white. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's how bad this is. <laughs> doesn't like spicy food. Doesn't like agave. I can't handle spicy food. Doesn't like agave. I will eat mole. I will eat my mother's mole and burn to death and love it because it's my mom's mole. Oh, my goodness. I will say that. Uh, all right. So these ones seem to be all right. I'm not a huge fan of the Marion Berry, but that's mostly because... I can't really tackle that, t- tie down what kind of flavor it is. It just. It's a berry flavor. That's I mean, just, what I'm saying. It's it just, just a sweet berry flavor. This I actually liked. I, I like the strawberry rhubarb. I think it's because, I think because this one tastes more like pure sugar. Yes. And this one tastes like if you put some alcohol in it, it could be almost beer. That's one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the organic gimmick, but I'm sure that helps in terms of the purity of its flavorings and all that nonsense. Possibly. So, if you ever have the chance to buy Ugabe, that might be a craft soda that you'll enjoy. Strawberry rhubarb or otherwise. I don't know about the Martian poop. I mean, if you really like sweet things, like if you have a really good sweet tooth, go ahead, try that one. It's not bad. It's not like what the hell is the other company you keep making us drink? Lester Fixins or something like that? Yeah. What, what the hell is his wife's name? Like, 
Mabel, Marvel, something. something with an M. <laughs> Don't buy from them, guys. Oh, they got some really exotic flavors. That corn one was pretty on point. I just don't know if I want corn soda ever, ever. again in my mouth. No, I'm good. For those of you here with us at YouTube, it's now time for our video break. Hope you're going to enjoy that, and we'll be right back with you. We're going to roll right into our next segment here at the podcast, which is the list of the week. This list comes from Rockstar. Take it away. So this week, I chose to do the top five worst My Little Pony toy gimmicks. This is a part of my uh, bathtub full of rainbows panel that I really don't get to talk about while I'm there because of the extensive history of the My Little Pony toy franchise. We have to talk about the weird ones. The, the weird ones, the creepy ones, and... It seems a theme with... The less successful ones. The theme, well, not true. Some of these are actually very successful. <laughs> uh, this doesn't have to do anything with success, but either personally they creep us out, or... No, let's just, let's just they're be just honest. They're just weird. They're, they're just weird, and they creep us out. One of them has a little bit of a malfunction. And in fact, that's the fifth one on my list. Uh, pearly baby sea ponies. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, we have to get over the Gen 1 sea pony. Just in general, looks weird. Just no matter which way you put it. They had a mermaid form, which didn't work either. Just sea ponies don't work. But with this one, it's less of how, uh, how it actually was marketed back when it came out, but more of nowadays. The problem with the pearly baby sea ponies is the pearlized skin is kind of been washed away. This toy really wasn't made to last that long, especially the ones that are in lighter colors. Um, and you'll be very hard pressed to try to find one of these that still retain the pearl shine, especially because it was marketed to, uh, you know, kids to play in water. <sighs> So it's no wonder they can't retain the pearl. But then we're going to move on to Generation 3, when they decided that a pony head on a plush body was going to look amazing. The best part is this plush body with hard plastic head and these dead eyes. Those dead eyes you look into. Just awful and actually so you can have comfort in your hand as you pummel the children to death <laughs> and actually there was a specific controversy over one of these ponies from generation three called bedtime's blessing um the reason is she recites the lord the little kids lord's prayer you know the one yes, i'm talking I, about I know what you yes mean. so she actually does recite it when you push on uh i think it's like a button on her butt and of course it is <laughs> On the Where else mark. would it be? And uh, people got really offended because of the religious overtones of bedtime blessings. So, little fun fact there for you. Moving right along to Generation 3.5, and they decided to do it over again with the new pony head. It's called Newborn Cutie. They put them in a different pose as if that really helps the situation. And unlike the Generation 3, which has somewhat braidable hair, this is more felt-like hair 
than anything else. Not only that, she has a button in her mouth that when you push, she sucks. And then when you release the button, she'll giggle or sigh. Just creepy all over. Creepy all over. I'm done with that. So then we get to my two favorite ones. Generation 1 Twinkle-Eyed Ponies. Now, I imagine <sighs> someone pitching this particular pony at the boardroom. You know, let's replace the eyes with jewels. Sounds an, like an interesting concept, and it should have just remained a concept. Because when you put it in actual light it looks horrible it's just they're worse than doll's eyes the, the inspiration doll's eyes have pupils the inspiration for Coraline has been discovered <laughs> and it is these terrifying my little pony dolls just should have never been executed in fact it should be executed and gen one that's not the only interesting idea they had with eyes they had the Betty Bye-Eyed Ponies, which looks like a drugged out tot. Since it is supposed to be a baby pony, it's just... Wanna get high? Hey man, I can tell you do drugs. Now the concept of this was supposed to be like the baby dolls that fall look like they're falling asleep when you lay them down. Except, I I don't know if it just doesn't work with ponies. I don't know if it's the eye. I don't know if it's the way they shape the eye. Maybe it's the it, part where the eye spontaneously <laughs> pops out of the body. Oh, yeah, that too. That actually is a very common problem with this particular model. So, uh, it's already creepy enough when the eyes are inside the pony, let alone when it has no eyes left. None. All right, we're going to put these over here where they can't hurt anybody anymore. And that was your list of the week. Moving right along, we're going to get into our second discussion topic for the evening. We're finishing out our discussion tonight by talking about con preparation. Specifically, going over the most important items and preparation steps that you need to take in order to have a positive experience. Not just for you but for those around you. For example, there are certain items that you could theoretically get away with not taking with you on a convention trip. And there are other items that you absolutely, positively must bring with you. There's no way around it. It's worth noting that this really only applies in multi-day convention scenarios. Thankfully, thank you God, in single-day day trip convention scenarios, Normally, you don't have to worry about people not taking showers for days on end. Fingers crossed. But when it comes to multi-day conventions, that's obviously not the case. You have a lot of people, and there's a lot of ongoing discussions and controversies surrounding personal hygiene and just attendees in general, you know, coming prepared. And that's really what this is about. This is what this discussion is about, how you can be more prepared for what you're going to encounter at the convention scene. To begin with, we're going to go into those indispensable items. There's a lot of ways that you can abridge what you need to take with you, whether it's, you know, stealing shampoo from the hotel or borrowing someone else's stuff 
or just taking advantage of whatever your friends have in the room. But in my experience, the indispensable items that you absolutely, positively must bring yourself. Toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant. Toothbrush, toothpaste, and deodorant. And one more time, toothbrush, toothpaste, and deodorant. Three times for three items, the three things that you need, especially on the three-day trips. That's not something that's normally offered by hotels for free. And while you could, if you forget them, go out and buy them, or run back and get them, or borrow them, more than likely you're not going to do that. So since the alternative is you run around without those items for the entire weekend, we're going to just get to the root of the problem right now and tell you you always, always need to bring those things with you. There are no exceptions. Bring them. Please. Save your roommates. You could do what we do and just have a toothbrush and a to- and toothpaste and deodorant that literally just stays in the suitcase. Don't remove them. You could do that. That's what travel kits are for, guys. Think about that. If you do it frequently, if you go to cons a lot, just build a travel kit. Having talked through the indispensable items, though, it is worth talking about ways that you can reduce your, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for here, the term, your travel footprint. You know, how much space you're going to take up, whether it's with luggage or, you know. Um, to be perfectly honest, when it comes to Manly Battleships, what, uh, whether we're going to a convention for fun or for work, we always have a lot. Of luggage. Equipment boxes at the wazoo, things on wheels, things not on wheels, we got a cart. When it comes to the majority of you out there, the question becomes, what is the minimum that you can bring that will both allow you to have an enjoyable time, not cause any major problems with for those around you, and fits into a small bag? For that, in addition to toiletries, we recommend the following as far as clothing goes, because clothing is the next big step there. You should have three pairs of socks, three pairs of underwear, three shirts, and an extra pair of pants. Wow, that sounds amazingly simple, Rockstar. I wonder why that is. Well, you need one of those things for each of the days in question. What about the pants? A tip that I learned over the course of my early career going to certain types of conferences that didn't deal with anime, uh, things like the Future World Leader Summit uh, back in, I think, 2005, 2006, a long time ago. Old man. One of the big tips that they gave out, in particular because a lot of the students who were there were underprivileged and were there on scholarship. One of the big things uh, that's a tip in Washington, D.C. is a pair of slacks can take you a long way. You can go a week and change without any major problems on one pair of pants if you're careful. If you don't stain them, if you don't spill things on them, if you keep them ironed and hanged up, that's not a problem. People don't care about your pants that much. They're looking at your shirt. They're seeing... Oh, your Dr. Pepper shirt, huh? Oh, yeah, you wore that yesterday and the three days before that. But pants you can get away with. Still, things can happen. You can spill stuff. You can go out in the weather and get wet. Uh, You could fall down in the mud when you're drunk. Lots of different things could happen. So always carry at least one pair uh, of extra pants with you. That, in my opinion, rounds out the absolute minimalist kit. If you are hauling one bag, riding a train, a bus, a plane to wherever, and that's basically all you got, and you're going to be sleeping on someone's floor, that's what you can get away with. I would make one addendum, though, since I made this list. A towel. Towel. Always bring a towel. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was never more relevant to the human condition than when they said, always bring a towel. 
It doesn't sound like it's that important, and in many cases, it's completely unnecessary. But when you're in a room with 12 people, and then you find out there's not enough towels to go around and that you'll never have an extra towel, believe me, that towel is a lifesaver. So as a general rule, always pack a towel. You will never miss it until you miss it. Towels. Now, for the female end, I actually don't pack light when it comes to clothes. Mostly because... Yeah, no shit. Mostly because I can't. I usually have clothes I can perform in, clothes that I can perform in if I'm not feeling good, uh, and just in general, a pair of pants if I get cold, and etc. Just, you know, one pair when I'm feeling great, and one pair of clothes when I'm not feeling good. Well, I mean, we have the curse and the advantage of being performers, so yeah. we're, always, we're always packing full. Most of us don't go on those... <laughs> I should say most of us in general, don't go on those wild adventure trips of soloing a con that's like eight hours away just for the heck of it. But that being said, um, now that I think about the list, you know, there is one thing that as a female we should always have. Even if you're not scheduled to have it, you should have some sanitary items. Those are very Even, helpful. <laughs> uh, like pads, tampons, whatever you use, especially because you don't know, like, I know there's certain things you can't share, like we have period panties now that I use. And actually, <laughs> I, I wouldn't share my period panty, but I still do have pads and tampons in case a girl around me needs one. Anyone else? Off the, hey, on the men might need floor. them too. Sure. Yeah. I, I could mean, get punched in the face or run into a wall when I'm drunk. I need a tampon. They're very useful for nosebleeds. Oh, yeah, that is true. They are useful for nosebleeds. So it's always just recommended just in case because you don't know what may happen and you don't want to be three hours away and have no way to clean up a mess besides the necessities there's always some less frequently talked about items that can be both useful for you as an individual and in particular if you are hosting a room you're not just crashing someone else's it behooves you to make sure that you have these items or if you have a more reliable group of friends staying with you, you can all trip in by each of you bringing one of those particular items. Things like, for example, a universal remote. Now, hotels are a lot better about this than they used to be back in the late 90s and early 2000s. But if you're in, if you're at a major con, frequently what you guys will want to do during your downtime is hook up a game console or a computer, watch some stuff, play some stuff. And what you'll find in a lot of hotels is that they either do not have a remote that's capable of switching over inputs or that uh, they might not have a remote at all. And so having a universal remote along with you tends to just keep things simple. It allows you to avoid having the problem of not being able to switch inputs. That's a very useful aspect of in-room entertainment. So if you're all going to get drunk in the room for several hours... And you want to make sure that you actually that the party doesn't die by 1 a.m., then it's very useful to have that kind of tool sitting around. Which also means batteries. Guys, bring batteries. The common ones. I highly recommend you bring extra double A's and triple A's for any application. You don't think you'll need it, but then you will need it, or someone you know and want to impress for some reason really needs those batteries, and they don't want to pay $14 in the gift shop. Bring some extra double A's, triple A's. It doesn't, it don't have to be fancy. You can get them from the dollar store every day. Rayovac, whatever. It doesn't matter. 
And extra charging cords. Extra charging cords for your device in particular. Bring two. Bring two. I Because do. you're going to lose one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always leave one in the hotel room for when I want to charge my devices at night and come one comes with me. Especially if you have USB-C or Lightning or Thunderbolt. Speaking of two of things, two pairs of shoes. Oh, are you speaking from experience, Rockstar? <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I normally bring two pairs of shoes, but I decided for Colossal Con East, I wasn't going to bring two pairs of shoes. And of course, what happens? I break the only pair of shoes I brought with me. That teaches me to always bring two pairs of shoes. And this, again, are some things that, uh, as a room host in particular, you want to look for. But if your room host is a little bit of a bum or doesn't think about these things, it behooves you to bring some of them for yourself. Trash bags. Hotel trash accommodations are not sufficient for the average con room. I don't know what they're thinking, why they can't just put in some extra bins or something. I've never once been in a regular, fully stocked con room that could live off of those little trash cans. Mm -mm. I always bring my own trash bags to cons because uh, room service seems to appreciate it when it's all in one location. You just empty yep. them right when you're done, leave them by the door, or if it's an ongoing thing, just put them right outside the door. Everyone's happy. How hard is it, guys? Bring some of your own trash bags. Other things that can be very useful include plastic cups, straws, very cheap, and they double as drink mixer, uh, stir mixers. Stir mixers. Plastic utensils. Water Those are also or Gatorade? Gatorade in particular. Bring a water bottle regardless of some kind because you want to be able to haul on your own fluids just for the, to save you some money. But Gatorade is useful for two reasons. First of all, delicious electrolytes. Having fluids in summer cons is a very important thing. Staying hydrated is one of those things that people tend to readily forget and then it can cause a lot of problems. It's very important to stay hydrated, so we do recommend that you bring water or your favorite sports drink. That's fine, too. Gatorade also has the advantage of being the greatest drink mixer of all time. You can get drunk and stay hydrated at the same time. And even if you drank all your Gatorade, now you can mix your own exotic drinks and people are just going to look at it and go, oh, it's Gatorade. Of course it's supposed to look blue. Uh, there was this one con where they were actually slightly trying to police that, like some of them were getting checking the exotically colored bottles and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I knew a guy who decided to get around that by taking in an Aquafina bottle and just had regular vodka. <laughs> Nothing but vodka in that bottle. It's water. <laughs> because you got to be desperate but no check out the Gatorade something else that you'll want to keep in mind if you are the room host is emergency food supply now this and all the other items that I've talked about uh, in, the, in, in the broader sense for the room as a whole you can always just use a really handy trick that I learned from a tour guide a few years back which is just add the price of all those items to the communal split it's really not that hard. It's completely ethical because everyone's gonna, everyone is going to use those. So, for example, things like Pop-Tarts, 
My personal favorite, of course, is to just get a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and jelly. Very generic. If you have, if you know for sure you're going to have a cooler, you could also change it up, get some lunch meats, some dairy products, some butter. And of course, there's the old standbys like cup of noodle, which you can get dirt cheap just about anywhere. Having these emergency food supplies around duh, is twofold advantage. First of all, for you, it gives you that leeway to not have to buy food at the con all the time, which can be a very expensive venture. But more importantly, for the bums out there who don't bring enough money or who spend all their money on porn, it means when you have to step in to save them from dying, you can give them a cup of noodle instead of a $20 cheeseburger. Gee, I actually wonder who you're talking about. I can't <laughs> imagine who. So, yeah, if you could all just dial back on the the porn purchases or expect to eat ramen noodle for the remainder of the weekend, that would be cool. Just so you know. What other kind of items might you bring? Um, well, this is the discussion aspect, Roxy. Well, for people who have a lot of medicine that they have to take and decide to go to a con. Oh, yeah, painkillers. That's (laughs) aspirin (laughs) is delicious. I I always have to have a lot of prescriptions with me. I do. And I have some over-the-counter supplements that I also have to take. So what I started doing is I have two backpacks. One of them holds all of my prescriptions, just all of them, including some things that aren't uh, prescriptions, like allergy pills if I need them uh, or if anyone else needs them. I have like Benadryl, Sudafed. Uh, painkillers, you know, it's essentially a mobile little pharmacy. And then I just take out what I need for the day into the other <laughs> backpack. And that way that can stay at the hotel and I have everything I need and just one convenient little thing. Of, of course, of course, <laughs> of course, the Mexican in the group is my walking pharmacy. Of course. Of course I do. And I actually have... Si, senor. Would you like some Pirin tablets? Purin tablets. Oh my god! Yes. Just a walk. Of course, I actually do have Purin You don't tablets like hot somewhere. sauce. You don't like agave, but you carry drugs everywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. They're all legal drugs, mind you. But yeah, I, I keep them all. You know, if you have chronic illnesses, sometimes it is really, really hard to pack light because I do have a bag that's literally dedicated to my chronic illness uh, because I need my heating blanket, you know, when I'm at a con. I need my uh, Tiger Bomb or whatever you else you use. Uh, icy hot, maybe. It's important to pack the things that you personally need. So if you do have regular medications, it's important you have stock enough. In fact, you should probably bring some extra in case something goes wrong and you end up stuck somewhere. In addition to that, though traveling if you are the like a lot of people do do mass transit now but that's not the norm from what i understand people in many ways are still kind of stuck in the in the american car methodology which means that you should make sure you have all the things you need to ensure a safe and secure journey if you can't afford an inspection right before your trip you should at least make sure that you have some of the essentials like you know a tested inflated spare tire yeah. Don't want to go Rocky Horror Picture Show on us here. And we're not talking a spare donut. We literally have a spare tire in the van. 
You also want to make sure you have extra oil and extra coolant and jumper cables. You know, I, things yep. that will make sure that if you get stuck, you can resolve your situation quickly without a tow truck. It helps if you are mechanically inclined, but for most problems that you encounter on the side of the road, they're easily fixed as long mm -hmm. as you are prepared. As a packing instruction, don't wait to the day before or the day of con. Always pack per at least preferably. Two, <laughs> two days before con. Because as soon as you start packing and once you think you're done, you'll always remember something. You'll always remember you forgot to pack something away. So pack two days ahead because then you have that one day to think of all the things you forgot. One last thing to note is weather-related items. Always check the weather two days beforehand and the day beforehand so that when you walk out of your place of residence, you can decide whether or not you need to bring an umbrella or boots or a poncho even. I would still recommend bringing them just because sometimes weatherman and the weather. Sometimes unexpected things develop like, like snowstorms. Like a giant snowstorm out of nowhere. And then the spare tire comes in real handy because the rest of your tires are bald. Isn't that right, Rockstar? <laughs> that tire is hanging as a trophy in our garage. I don't know what you're talking about. That got us through the April Fool's snowstorm of J-Con. Fun times. We'll have to save that for another story time. <laughs> So what else in con prep might be essential that we haven't covered, if anything? Well, we've we've hit all the major essentials. You got toiletries at the minimum. Like that that you got to do it. You got to do it. Then bring enough clothes to get you through the weekend so that you won't stink up the place and in case anything gets spilled on you. Then it's the it's the bonus items, the luxury items, things like you well, know. unless it's medication, those aren't luxury oh, items. Oh my word. Please bring them. I'm pretty sure people know to bring their drugs with them. <laughs> Don't know. You just made them sound like a luxury. Aspirin. Not aspirin. I'm talking like legitimately prescribed drugs. Viagra. Oh, speaking of Viagra, you should bring condoms. <laughs> if you have any intent on being sexually active, please bring condoms. Please be prepared. I don't care Even if you're a male, female. Females should carry condoms, too. Not just the guys. You can carry condoms, too. They're really not that hard to Especially carry. Especially if you have a preference or an allergy. Mm -hmm. Lambskin condoms are not easy to come by. We don't want condoms. Damn, bringing all, the bringing all the necessities for sex. Man, that could be like its own separate chapter. That's like a super luxury item. You guys don't have sex. Don't lie to yourself, weeaboos. If I recall... They're that's... too busy buying porn. They can't afford condoms. I recall differently in some of our hotel rooms. Not anymore, but some. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to our final segment tonight here at Abdulists and Drunkards. That's pretty cool. As you all know, That's Pretty Cool is a segment that we use at the end of the show to highlight some interesting, semi-important trivia that we come up with over the course of our time researching for panels. In many cases, it's something that just doesn't fit into the mainstream narrative of a lot of the work that we're doing on the convention circuit. Sometimes it's closely related, sometimes it's really far off in left field, but it is, in our opinion, pretty cool. Tonight, 
That's Pretty Cool comes from me. I'm going to be talking to you about a particular movie and some of the roles that I I should say the actors that are associated with it. You may have heard of it before, but part of the problem is that it goes by several different names. Sometimes it's called The Princess and the Cobbler. Sometimes it's called Arabian Night. I believe it's most commonly known as The Thief and the Cobbler, after the two main characters at the center of the story. This movie was a love work by a fantastic animator who goes by the name of Richard Williams. Richard Williams is probably best known as being the animation director of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but this project was the product of him working off and on for over 30 years with his animation team, almost like a a practice run, essentially. Whenever they didn't have something to do, they would work on this project and kind of build up their skills. Finally, in the 1990s, he got someone interested enough to actually fund the completion of the work, and that's what they started doing. The problem was that because of some interesting parallels from from a movie by the Walt Disney Company called Aladdin, the investors got cold feet at the last minute, pulled the plug on Richard Williams' involvement, and had a random studio finish out the remainder of the film with some very janky animation pieces. Unfortunately, to this day, the closest we've gotten to a restored piece of what Richard Williams actually pictured uh, is a fan version called the Recobbled Cut, which is they took as much of the material, both from the production aspect, and I believe there are actually segments that were hand-drawn by participants of the project to kind of give you an idea of what the scene was meant to look like. And they, they, they tied that all together with a bunch of other material to make that version. But the version that we got still includes some very brilliant aspects uh, from Richard Williams' vision. Among them is the role that I wanted to highlight tonight. The character Zigzag, who's kind of a... Uh, is, it's a Jafar stand-in. Just, let's just get through it. The Jafar character, I think, is clearly based off of it. The, the Grand Vizier is Zigzag. The blue-skinned zigzag, the eloquent zigzag, very verbose zigzag, is voiced by none other than famous actor dearly departed Vincent Price. This is, in fact, his last credited role as a movie actor. Now, the voicing, I believe, was recorded several years prior to the completion of the final project, but it is the last mainstream movie release that still had his name in the credits. In fact, Vincent Price is not the only famous person who is tied to this production. And I I'm, I don't just mean uh, the terrible decision to add voices to the silent roles in general. In the final cut of what we got from the Walt Disney Company via United Artists. Because, of course, Walt Disney ended up owning the rights to the movie in the end. Right. Go figure. Matthew Broderick, <laughs> in that version, voices the cobbler who originally was supposed to be a silent role. My favorite actor. Oh, he's so terrible. He's he so is bad. not. He's I love bad. Him. You know, I've He's loved- the same person in every role he's ever played. He's the Michael Sarah of the 1990s. I'm sorry, but I've loved him since Lady Hawk. <sighs> you can't you can't convince me. I've loved him since Lady Hawk. There's some interesting things in Lady Hawk. <laughs> Matthew Broderick is not one of them. I love him. Favorite actor. No. Yes. No. Yep. One of my favorite actors. We're getting off track. (laughs) I wanted to... 
<laughs> I talked about Vincent Price. Yes. Now, I, ca- I don't remember the name of the, the other actor off the top of my head, but they actually brought in a voice actor for The Thief as well. And again, originally these were going to be silent roles. And there's some, there's a few jokes, because, you know, the thief, is, the thief is kind of the comic relief character regardless, but they, they bring in a guy to kind of voice him over as his internal monologue, and there's some amusing moments. But Richard Williams originally pictured these characters and their dynamic in the, in the movie as being essentially situational comedy. It's all physical comedy. It's, the, the, despite their silence, there's a whole bunch of hilarious stuff that goes on there. And it's, it's not only funny... It's just gorgeously animated at points. And unfortunately, um, there was one temporary look at remaking parts of the film to kind of give it its completionist feel uh, that was going to be overseen by Roy Disney. But unfortunately, he died and never got around to kind of forcing that issue after he helped wrest back control from Michael Eisner. That's another story entirely. But the other part I wanted to touch on here is in the original version of the movie, the cobbler is silent up until the last shot of the movie. Which, incidentally, that part is still in the movie, but of course the cobbler keeps talking before that too, which is just weird. And the person who actually did record a line for it, and was never used in the fi- in the film version, obviously, but the person who recorded it and was going to play the cobbler in his one line was Sean Connery. What a difference. I believe that's actually added in in the recobbled cut. They actually have mm-hmm. the recording that he did for it added in for the final, uh, the final scene there. Mm-hmm. There is still a quite, quite a bit of the original movie left in The Thief and the Cobbler that you can get today. And so if you want a taste of what that movie could have been, perhaps it would have been the greatest art house animation film of all time. But of course, no one really wants to fund art house films now, do they? It's still worth it. Uh, uh, it's still worth you checking out. So if you have the chance, go for it. If you have the patience to sit through the recobbled cut, that might be even more interesting for you if you're kind of a film buff. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll agree that the final role of Vincent Price, which may have included Sean Connery in the film reel as well, had it been completed the way it was meant to be. That's pretty cool. Ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the end of our time here at Abdullahs and Drunkards. We hope that you have enjoyed sitting with us at this fine evening establishment. We hope that you will continue to follow us on YouTube and Facebook. Maybe check out our Twitter. I'm never going to share that Reddit link, am I? Probably not. But you can continue to come with us here an hour and change probably every week for the foreseeable future and we hope that you will do that hit subscribe and check out our continued work both on the convention circuit and online and please do remember that here at of duelists and drunkards there are not any duelists but there are plenty of drunkards bye now bye bye